yeah so there's actually no secret that's the thing that's you know a lot of if more people understood it that their businesses would skyrocket the real secret is is the consistency and you know like applying a certain kind of ways of thinking right you're listening to ecomonics a debutify podcast your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Matt Panek of Sales Genomics utilizes his psychology background to help understand not only the customer, but how to run a business. In this episode, we talk about how the front-facing structure sets it apart from other ad agencies. Sales Genomics more definitely integrates each department, while also making sure the employees are happy and productive. Matt Panek, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? Hey, Joseph. Awesome to be here. Super excited. I, same here. I'm, uh, I, I was excited to, to talk to you. I checked out what your, your, your operation is up to, so I definitely have some questions uh, specific to that. And you know, it is exciting just to see how big the industry really is, because every time I meet somebody, it adds another piece into the puzzle, and I say, wow, okay, now I understand uh, how much more influence uh, there really is. And I also just wanted to ask, too, what time is it right there in Dubai? It's actually, <laughs> I need to double check. I, I currently operate across three time zones. Okay, it's actually 5 p.m. 5 p.m.? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just to, to our audience, I, I don't know how often that they're like a, a engaged in the video. You know, no, not, not, I'm, I'm in that same way too. I, if I'll, I'll throw something on, then I'll minimize it. But take a moment, just like look at the background people. It's just fantastic to, to see. Uh, took, took my breath away for a second there. Yeah, you can't imagine how excited I actually am. So last month I moved to Dubai from Poland where we have, you know, like a massive lockdown probably like in most mm-hmm. of the world right now. So I'm super excited to be here with the sun and... <laughs> and almost no restrictions. Yeah, I. All right. Well, since I, since I brought it up, uh, the opening question is for you to know, tell us what you're up to. But we're gonna like put a pin in that for a second. Like, I, I I just wanted to hear like, um, was your decision to go to Dubai based on the lockdown restrictions? You just wanted you know some uh, some of that old school freedom back. Uh, weather and taxes. <laughs> okay. Check it out. Definitely good good for for drop shipping as well. Okay, yeah, that that that's that's totally fair. All right, so pulling the pin out, uh, tell us what you do and tell us what you're up to these days. All right, so I'm actually the founder of the Sales Genomics Co. UK, which is uh, an e-commerce growth hacking agency. So, what we do is we help e-commerce stores take things to the next level, and uh, we are proud to have actually generated over 35 million dollars in direct consumer sales for our customers in 2020 alone. Um, you know, a Facebook partner, we've run ads for companies such as uh, Colgate, such as Perco or Silvercut, uh, in, if you guys are into, you know, dropshipping and things like that. Um, and yeah, so we are running a completely decentralized operation, 70 plus people with, with zero physical office. And, you know, we kind of, <laughs> I feel, embody what we believe in, which is the lifestyle of freedom that uh, e-commerce businesses and dropshipping businesses allow you to have. And you, you mentioned um, uh, Colgate in there too, right? Colgate uh, as in the, the toothpaste um, manufacturer? Correct, yeah. Great. So I want to ask you about that briefly, because uh, one of the things that I noticed lately is that there's this challenge uh, and it's a very and it's a very like unconscious level because I don't actually know if the e-commerce industry at large is thinking about it. But I think this is happening on a subconscious level, which is the challenge of bridging the gap between e-commerce brands and what I would 
describe as household brands. So how soon into your career or at what point did it take place through Sales Genomics um, Foundation to today? Were you able to secure work with something that, for no, for lack of a better term, people recognize and already have some affinity with? Yeah, so it's been it's been probably like four years into the works, but actually like a more interesting story to tell here. And you know, I probably can't go into too much details about this. Well, give us as much uh, but, as you can. But what we've uh, what we've been working actually with uh, companies like Colgate on is actually helping big brands embrace the the direct consumer revolution, right? Because like. If you're like me, you kind of got into the e-commerce industry. Well, it was already kind of maturing, but uh, and for us, it's it's almost like you know the kids being born into the internet, right? To us, you know, it's it's completely natural, and we don't even think what things were like before. But what we actually need to realize is that you know never before, you know, up to maybe you know like 20, 30 years ago, it was almost impossible to you know come up with a product and just sell it directly to a huge amount of customers and grow a brand that's gonna be a hundred million dollars brand. Like you, you even big brands like think Colgate, right? They were usually uh, basically left at the mercy of the retailers, right? So you know such as Walmart and stuff like that in order to distribute the products to to customers. And you know the, the reason that you know companies were growing so big was actually you know like they, they were capturing all the benefits of, you know, negotiating with the retailers, getting better shelf prices. You know, if a retailer doesn't like you or you don't get a good deal for them, you know, they'll put you down on the shelf and your brand stops existing, right? So now basically with all the tools of e-commerce, brands can, can really start selling uh, directly at very little to, you know, very little cost of um, very little barriers to entry, right? So this is actually something that, uh, the big brands are realizing, right, that one thing, you know, you can access you, your customers directly, but another benefit of selling directly to, co- to consumer online is actually all the data that you're gathering, right? All the data that you can use for um, optimizing your for advertising spend, right? So testing out which creatives are going to are gonna perform better, not just in terms of the brand awareness metrics, but also in terms of, uh, in terms of real cost of acquisitions, right? So you can, let's say, test your creatives on the performance metrics, and then you put them on a banner, right? This is how you scale your campaigns as well. Uh, another thing is you can really get to know who your customers are by, you know, running split tests in different audience groups and see what kind of messaging resonates with that audience group, right? So all this kind of data hub and understanding of your customers, even, you know, things like the purchase behavior of long-term customers. How many times do they buy? When do they buy? What kind of products they buy across the catalog, right? So all those kind of direct consumer brands could really act as assets for the big companies and corporations to um, to make all sorts of decisions. So, you know, stuff like the acquisition of the Dollar Shave Club, um, this really shows that, that the big corporations are really craving for this data, but they actually find it very difficult to build any sort of direct consumer uh, toolkit in-house, right? So that's why, you know, they hire companies like, like Sales Genomics or they acquire brands from the outside to to try to really enter this um, this direct consumer revolution, right, for all its purposes. So so that, that's really interesting. And we really forget, you know, for us, it's okay, we're just going to find the next dropshipping product and sell it. But there's really a big picture in play. Um, and I think it's only going to become more important 
Mm-hmm. You, you you raise a lot of uh, interesting points there. One of them, by the way, I, I didn't know until you had said it, was that Dollar Shave Club had been acquired at all. Um, up to this point, I had assumed that it was still uh, an independent company. Now, my guess is, is that as a brand, it still comes across as independent. But I, I, I don't know what your expertise is on it because I don't know what your relationship is with it. Maybe you just heard of it in passing. But it sounds like a larger company like Gillette or something like that had bought them out. And not, yeah, that was Gillette, not yeah. so much for the product. But it really, it was for the data and how much uh, individual consumer data they had collected because they have the direct relationship with them. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that that's what's happening. So the companies are acquiring those companies at, at you know, like much higher valuations that their EBITDA would uh, suggest, right? Um, just because of the of this data. Now the question is, are they going to be able to monetize this data? I think you know, was it dollar shape up? Now you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But, uh, you know, the, the prices of acquisitions of direct-to-consumer companies have been falling down uh, consistently, just probably because the big companies don't yet know how to integrate those assets within their operations, right, which I think is, is probably what's going on. So the value of, you know, they, they haven't properly realized the value. Um, and, you know, like there was a hype at the beginning, then probably like some, you know, there hasn't been like a super, super huge billion-dollar exit uh, lately in terms of e-commerce from from what I'm aware of. But um, but yeah, still, I think that, you know, value of direct consumer is huge. I'm not going to be the first person to uh, say this on, on the show or probably even um, just today. But when we're dealing, we're still dealing with the, the longest 14 days to slow the spread in history. And the result of that has caused a lot of these companies to have an accelerated relationship with uh, e-commerce um, uh, agencies and services such as yourself to the point where people can't even right now here in, in Toronto, we couldn't even physically go into a store, say like Walmart, for instance, they they sectioned off a bunch of the areas so that we can only buy the essentials. And I, I have a feeling I can still get in there. I can still probably get toothpaste. Lucky for the toothpaste company, they picked uh, something that was essential. You know, what clothing companies right now, they don't have they wouldn't have that same luxury. Uh, which is ironic if you think about it, because clothing is essential in most parts of the world, anyways. And so, what I one more question about this, and then I'll I'll shift gears, and because I have some questions about your agency um, primarily, is you know, let's say doors are open uh, once again, and you know, people are able to once again shop freely, like they do in in some parts of the world at this point, is how could that affect their relationship um, with some of these larger brands, and what will they? wants to continue to get out of having their physical presence in the stores. Because one thing that I think is still an advantage is that unconscious marketing of even seeing the product there physically. There's an element of prestige. There's a legacy to it of seeing something. I think a lot, not everybody, but I think a lot of people understand that for something to be in a store, there is a cost to it. And so there is a lot of work involved just to put it on display. And I think that does add an element of prestige to the brands that can make it to that point. Yeah. So, um, so the question was, what is going to happen to e-commerce uh, and relationships with big brands? So are they going to reduce the e-commerce budgets or uh, and whatnot? Right? That if I understood it correctly, could they? Yeah, that, that that's definitely one thing. One one part of the question. Yeah, the overall, what would happen to the relationship? Yeah, exactly. So what I what I think is is actually happening is uh, that e-commerce, you know, the way big brands think about it, right? Is e-commerce is just part of the game. It's just uh, one of the uh, distribution channels, right? So, you know, in the same way that, you know, your own brand and your own storefront that you run ads to, it's one distribution channel. Another distribution channel is your, uh, let's say, Amazon storefront. And another one is going to be your your offline presence, whether it's a pop-up store or a presence in some sort of retail location, right? Like Walmart, for example. 
Uh, so, so brands, you know, like always try to optimize different, uh, different parts of their distribution channels, right? And, you know, th- there is both the benefits of brands who are existing offline to move online for the purpose of data optimization, um, you know, further scaling and stuff like that. We have a lot of clients who actually move from offline to online just because they want to exploit this revolution, you know, really move online, um, you know, get the benefits of, of, of be having a channel they control but also there are brands who just like you mentioned like get the prestige and and, you know like really unlock massive scale by going into retail right so they start from e-commerce they have this you know uh cash flow optimized or or not even if they let's say they they have external funding they're just pumping cash into it they get to a certain level or they can you know they get noticed by by certain by some sort of retailer and they get into retail contracts uh to to scale their Mm, you know, into wholesale, right? Because that's that's what really unlocks the volume. If you can ac- access mass market, you know, you're definitely going to get worse uh, margins. You're going to have to, you might possibly even redefine your uh, product because, you know, let's say you're selling in e-commerce, you know, what's selling in e-commerce because you need to be able to afford ads. It's probably mostly going to be brands that are leaning more towards the premium segment and uh, and that might not necessarily be what's going to fit in, in the retail, right? So let's, we have a client right now uh, that's in talks with uh, retailers and you know one thing we need to do is actually redesign and create a smaller package size so that we can be on the same price point as some other offerings that they have that uh, that the retailers already have on their shelves right but that is definitely a good move for uh for the for the brands you know both for the prestige and for the scale Right. And, and one thing that we also see brands do uh, in order to be able to uh, control some different parts of the market is they can uh, rebrand their products. Uh, I don't know uh, how like prevalent, like say No Name is, for instance. Um, I, here in Canada, we have the No Name brand, which is a, well, I mean, it's the most unremarkable branding possible to the point where it's actually kind of remarkable. Like it's, 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 a, it's an ironic pattern interrupt because everybody else focuses on having um, uh, appealing marketing and no name is the interrupt because it's not, it's like purposely not appealing. And uh, we even have a, su- a supermarket that's like if no name wanted to run its own store called No Frills, which is like the no name store. So it, so what you, what we have is you have these brands that they will produce those products and they'll just label it differently so that they can control different parts of the market. So that is also one of the challenges too, is that not only are you competing against one brand or one product, you're competing against several products, all of which are controlled by one brand. Yeah, yeah. And that's really interesting because uh, I just read this really cool book that's called uh, Confessions of a Pricing Man. It's a pretty cool book about pricing, <laughs> unsurprisingly. But one really interesting thing and a question that a lot of people who start, um, you know, let's say they start on Amazon or they start running their own Shopify store and they want to move to Amazon or the other way around, the problem that they have is sometimes, you know, let's say you've got Amazon sellers doing big volume, right? And then they, they think, okay, I my product is great. I'm going to move to Shopify. And then they fail completely just because, you know, the, the Amazon is intent-based primarily, right? You're attacking people with products that, you know, that people are searching for, even if you're running ads on Amazon, while on, on you know, your own sort of uh, store, you get a, you, you either run Google ads or you, which are also competitive, or you do some sort of display ads, right? Where everything is based on some sort of, you know, like unique um, attention-grabbing, wow factor instagrammable products right so so sometimes you know not the same product that is going to sell well on amazon is going to sell well on your own store at least using the typical let's call it e-commerce tactics of you know facebook instagram ads influencers and so on so sometimes brands could be better off actually spinning out a different product for 
for this new distribution channel that just like you suggested. And uh, yeah, a lot of people do it successfully. And actually, one of the things that I had uh, looked uh, when I had discovered when I was um, researching some of the content that you had done is now this was a conversation that you would have with somebody else, but it was the subject of native ads. Uh, and I got to say, I don't think we've talked about that on the uh, on the program. So I think this would be a really good time to, to bring that up. Just what were your takeaways from that discussion and how native ads um, could be a factor in the situation that we're in right now? Yeah, so native ads are actually pretty, pretty good. And, you know, this was probably one of my biggest discoveries of 2020. So, you know, think about this, you know, like I come when I discovered e-commerce and Facebook ads, right, I really discovered, you know, Facebook ads. And I'm like, OK, there's this thing called Facebook ads. There's this, you know, I can sell products online using Facebook ads. And only then I started discovering that there are new ad platforms. But actually, you know, uh, native ads is probably one of the older type of advertising, you know, the stereotypical display that affiliates used to run since the beginning of the Internet. Right. So platforms for running native ads like Tabula or Outbrain, you know, have, have existed for a while. And they're actually growing in importance. Um, I think Tabula just you know, announced an IPO. So so it's really, really big thing that's happening. Uh, so what are native ads, right? Those are effectively all those sort of scummy banners you can sometimes find on, on the bottom of the articles that, you know, they almost look like, like a suggested article. Um, and they, they're really, you know, it's, they're all about the like, curiosity and getting you to, to click on this page. And then you get sent usually not to a product page, but to another article, right? Or something that resembles an article, which we call advertorials. Yeah, you run a customer through as, as if, you know, they're on some sort of content platform, right? They read, a, they read an article, they click on your ad, they land on your article, and then you kind of take them through the journey of this, this long-form sales letter um, to, to eventually make a purchase, right? So what's that good for, right? It's good for products that are pretty broad because those, uh, you know, the, the network's targeting abilities uh, and the AI is, by the way, pretty great, but it doesn't offer the same kind of granular targeting that you can find on Facebook, right? So you can't target specific interests. You're mostly relying on on demographics and uh, and countries, right? And you can optimize placements, so like those very kind of high level metrics. So the the stuff that's going to do best are going to be products that are really attacking the mass market. You know, a lot of people uh, problems that a lot of people have, right? To say, you know, relationships, health, some sort of uh, you know business advice, finance, stuff like that, right? But also products such as probably maybe something like kitchen appliances where you can really hit a lot of people, right? A lot of people have these issues. Yeah, like native ads are run very differently to, to Facebook ads. So you're, you know, like from what I've noticed and the kind of strategies that work for us is, you know, you have very simple creatives based on curiosity. They're, they they do allow video advertising, but I haven't seen it working too well. Um, you know, the ads and Headlines are based on pure curiosity, something that you would learn from, you know, the classics of copywriting, right? Um, and um, you can personalize certain things in the ad copy based on, let's say, the, the country or the city where the visitor is from to add a little bit more relevance to it. And in terms of the campaigns, you usually segment by, by mobile versus desktop because you bid differently on those different platforms. You separate countries, you can bundle them together and stuff like that. So in that sense, it's, um, it's, it's a little bit um, different. Facebook where you know we're mostly all about you know power five now and you know broad audiences and flexibility and liquidity of the AI right what else can I say about native ads the algorithm is pretty stable so once you find something that's working you know it's, it should continue to work for you for uh, for a long time right uh, and um, yeah like the main criterion whether to run native ads is you know not whether oh I let me try something new you know it's a shiny object syndrome but 
but whether your product can actually be good for it. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I thought was uh, interesting about this is the relationship between what level of intent the potential consumer is at, because if they're running on a website, um, and especially if their ads are running on an article, then that article should already curate a lot of the interest of the reader. So if it's like, you know, t- t- top 10 uh, uh, alternatives to shaving your face, uh, number eight will blow your mind. Like that already implies a lot of what the consumer is going to be like i mean they, they probably have a facial hair uh they're probably open to uh, bladed weaponry and then by the time they get to uh the the ad i guess the one thing that i would want to discover and you know this is one thing i can always look into on my own is like how relevant uh, i can control where i place the ad so if i want to target somebody along those lines if i can look at the article and specific and say this is a perfect article this is where i would want to put my ad yeah so i'm not entirely sure you know i'm not such i'm not so big of a native ads expert so my sure, media sure. buyers run it but what i know is you can you do you can optimize the publishers that you display it on but i'm not entirely sure if you can let's say personalize a specific article right you can definitely do it on uh, you know, on platforms such as Google Display, but on Tabula, maybe. I mean, that would theoretically make sense, right, to have it. But I'm not entirely sure how granular you can go with that. But also, you know, I think that, the, you know, ultimately, the you can find a few articles that work, but the game is, you know, fighting the big scale with uh, with those algorithms, right? Right. Yeah, that, that's me. That's me speculating. I'm just um, imagining how that would have an interesting relationship between uh, an intent uh, versus uh, consumer warmth, because they're they're somewhat looking for solutions to it, but they, you know, they're also hoping that they can look around the house for something to solve that problem. So I'll, I'll, I'll table that for when I get to talk to Tabula down the line. Let's shift into uh, sales genomics. So there's definitely, I have some questions here about the about the company and i think as a starting point i would like to know the origins of it you know when uh, when you started this what problems in the market were you looking to solve unique to what the company does today yeah so that's that's actually pretty funny because you know the, the my initial intent behind creating sales genomics was i wanted to i was a pharmacy student i was studying in, in london and i you know i realized i really didn't want to do what i was studying at some point i just woke up and i'm like Hey, I need to do something else with my life, or I'm going to wake up in five years, you know, selling sandwiches and uh, and pills to to old ladies in a pharmacy. So, uh, so I had to find a new way, and you know, I didn't really have any startup ideas, and it seemed that you know all you could do was uh, create an innovative startup unicorn, or uh, you know, go to work in a consulting company or banking. So I I decided, you know, I'm just going to go do this, right? But I I didn't get accepted anywhere, <laughs> so I hit a wall. I had to find something to do. And then I saw one of the, you know, like uh, scammy ads on on YouTube or something, you know, about creating uh, a dropshipping business and learning Facebook ads. So that's where I basically started. And I started learning Facebook ads. um, And I basically decided, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to learn to do Facebook ads. And I really got, you know, quickly got into the market and got excited about the whole marketing because I could apply my passion for, for psychology that I drew from my, you know, pharmacy studies into into an actually a real world application of marketing. So that was that was pretty exciting. And you know, I started learning and failing, uh, spending some of my own money, you know, getting some clients, losing some clients, and then I eventually, when I cracked the code and figured out that the the real way to um, to to scale an e-commerce business is not through just just running Facebook ads, but to, to, by applying you know a certain methodological growth hacking process to you know to iterate and test fast and fail fast and bring the, the capable team to good 
with you. Um, then, you know, our company really started to expand and me and my business partner, uh, we merged the two companies where we, which we actually started separately and we, uh, yeah, then we, you know, we're here five years later, sales genomics, over 70 people, super happy about it. I, I love asking about psychology because it is one of those subjects that everybody in some way, shape or form is affected by. And so one of the things that I also like to uh, talk to people about is how those skills came with them when entering into e-commerce. So um, as much as you're willing to share, you know, I don't, you don't, you don't want to give away the secret sauce. I understand if you don't want to give it away, I understand. But um, how did psychology apply to the methodology of the business you're running? Yeah, so there's actually no secret. That's the thing that's, you know, a lot of okay. if more people understood it, that their businesses would skyrocket, right? The real secret is, is the consistency and, you know, like applying a certain kind of ways of thinking, right? So, um, you know, in, in marketing, almost everything is a test, right? You got to understand that, you know, you got to, you got to basically have a, have a way. So, the, okay, let, let's take a step back. So the way we think about this, you know, we're a growth fucking agency. And, you know, what that really means is that we're applying the principles that, you know, certain companies were using for growing tech startups, like Dropbox and things like that uh, for uh, for e-commerce, right? So um, what do they really do aside from, you know, the, the things that a lot of people hear about, which is stuff like, you know, referral programs and stuff like this, but that's only a tiny part of what those companies actually do. What they do is we operate in, in a sort of a cycle, right? The cycle is analysis. The cycle is ideation, prioritization, and, um, and action, right? So, and then repeat. So basically we look at the data we see, okay, we, we see what patterns in the data we see. We optimize our data gathering procedures, see where the drop-off is happening. Let's say, you know, we have a certain campaign on Facebook. Uh, we look, we see that, you know, the, what's, what stacks out is, um, is the fact that conversion rate at, you know, between the product page and the up to cart is significantly lower than, than a benchmark that we would be expecting. Or, um, and then we decide, okay, like, let's see what could be the, the, the issue, right? So we generate a list of hypotheses, right? And we say, let's say, okay, our product page is not evoking enough trust. Another thing is maybe this is a product that a lot of people already know what it should cost. Maybe we are, and we are priced a bit, a bit, a bit premium. How about we change the pricing or put some kind of offer that say we increase the price and then we slash it, right? So that we, we set a different hook and make the price seem a little bit more appealing, right? And we generate the list of those sort of hypotheses and then we decide, you know, we basically rank things either, you know, in a more systematic or less systematic way, depending on, you know, um, how much you want to go into this, but we, we decide, okay, like this is the things that are we, that we're going to test first. Right. Um, and then we, we, you know, we, we, we run a test, we implement things, we gather the data again and we, and we analyze it again. Right. If you think about growth hacking applied on the Facebook, uh, ads perspective, right. Think about creatives, right. So when most of the people, what they do is they, uh, okay, I want to test more creatives. I know creatives are important for my campaign success. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to order more creatives from my, um, from my, you know, video team and, you know, just get me some more creatives, get some more like this, get some more shiny stuff like this and so on. Right. This is how, and then, you know, they just get results. This works, this doesn't work. There's very little analysis to it and people just give up and then get an, another random batch. Right. So what this process lacks is effectively the retaining the learnings from one iteration to another, right. Which is really what's going to take you to the next level. So that's why we, in, instead of testing creatives, what we do is we test hypotheses, right? So we, um, before each creative test, what happens is we repeat the same process as I explained before for a creatives, right? So let's say 
we would generate certain concepts first, right? So you got the ideas have to start from somewhere. So let's say we come up, hey, what if, you know, for this brand, we test the concept. Um, let's say, okay, we're, we're selling a brand that's a pool monitor, right? That monitors the quality of your pool. And we decide, okay, how about we, uh, we focus on the fact how much money people will save when, um, when buying this product. And you know, another concept could be, how about we just show those very funny viral videos of how a, a person is transformed from like a, you know, shitty pools, uh, pool owner to like, a you know, like a, someone that a lot of friends come to, right? So just like yeah. upgrading the social proof angle. So we come up with concepts that is usually a mixture of some sort of pain point or, or objective that the customer has and some sort of visual way of representing that, right? And then what we do is we, let's say we have one concept, then we for iterations of each one, right? So let's say the social proof aspects could be displayed in the form of like, a, you know, video and a person just, just doing the, just doing their thing or it could be a side-by-side comparison right which we let's say we show maybe a better example it shows how we save time so we have a comparison with like a clock on each side and we see okay like this is how long a normal person takes to do this this is how long a person owning this pool monitor will take to complete this task so we will generate let's say five different iterations of this concept and then we're going to develop you know we have two concepts side by side we're going to test them against each other right and then we analyze results in context right so we uh, yes we will look at the global metrics and compare it against you know certain control creatives that we have uh, our best performers but we'll we will also you know compare things um, relatively to one another and then we will draw conclusions right let's say uh, you know like this particular iteration performed a little bit better then we're going to do more iterations in the next round right so we take this iteration that seems to work best we're going to create five iterations for each right and in this kind of iterative process you really like after let's say 10 rounds of these you not only have you know a creative that works but you actually have creative that is performing you know 10 times better than the initial one that you that you've made right so uh, maybe it's less related to psychology but uh, but more related to how this growth hacking process actually works and you know why some companies are just you know like when they get their, themselves into something that's working all is good but the the real the real you know you you only show what are your processes working when when things get tough right which they inevitably will in the e-commerce world i think you make a, a good point about actually you make several good points there um well i mean one of them is like how much of a element psychology of uh, factors into this i think for me just because it is my understanding, you know, it's the understanding of the human mind. There's always an element of it, regardless, right? Advertising is reaching, is conveying a message to somebody else. So I think on some level, it is, a, is it a, it's a foundational aspect of it. The part that I enjoyed from from your your description here is how it seems to open up a certain mixture of creativity and also a, a lot logical thinking because you're trying to understand what would be components of human behavior that could. Um, you know, result in conversions. So going back to your example about the pool monitor, if initially, if somebody is wanting to save money, as you're describing that, the the first part that popped into my head is, well, if they have a pool, then they obviously have uh, achieved some level of, you know, financial stability, uh, because the pools are a luxury. 
So for for them to save money, that raises a lot of questions about okay, is this somebody who, despite you know, in spite of owning this, they still try to maximize the value out of it, or, or do they always uh, lean conservatively? I don't know if that was just like a hypothetical, but I I guess I was I am wondering too. Is like in that particular example, was there a relationship between them conserving their their finances while also being able to afford a pool in the first place? No, that was like a hypothetical example in yeah. terms of the uh, okay those those creatives. I'm not entirely sure. You know what are the drivers the underlying drivers of the customers but coming back to psychology i think you know psychology and the basics of marketing so you know i really considered copywriting as the foundation of all marketing right really understanding the customer psychology um it's it's really what it's what it's based off right so i really recently had a really interesting conversation with a friend and we were saying how basically um you know like a lot of marketing is built on sort of inefficiencies right that people exploit so let's say you know you're the first company to use facebook ads to market their products right and even though you know your product is pretty much the same and your marketing is very basic you're gonna you're gonna do well because you know there's just no competition or in general you're one of the first companies to run facebook ads your cpms are you know one (laughs) dollar and you can sell anything right then things become then you know like 10 years later uh, you know, your CPMs are 50, you cannot sell your product anymore, right? You have to, you know, like fuck your store um, and go sell somewhere else, right? And um, and what's, what's, you know, but let's say coming back to the traditional ways of marketing, such as, you know, TV, where you have to get really good or just, you know, like magazine ads, like so, sort of postcards and things like that, you really have to... Um, Go back to the basics, right? Which is which is the the, the customer psychology and uh, you know crafting good uh, good marketing copy and really making good creatives that that you know like kind of you know like are spot on on every aspect of it, right? And uh, that's what actually might happen to on Facebook as well. You know, we're expecting the iOS changes, uh, you know, to like you know obliterate a large part of the market. Probably, you know, I was just reading up um, about a lot of this before our call because that, that's where my focus is lately on figuring out how to, you know, whether there's going to be a storm, <laughs> how big of a storm it's going to be, how should we prepare and um, yeah, like whether, you know, some companies are going to go out of business or not. Right. And uh, what we what I what I figured is that, you know, one of the part, one of the things to, you know, protect yourself from any sort of havoc on any advertising platform is like. You know, of course, having a really good product, optimizing your, you know, having a really good offer for the customers and then going back to the basics in terms of marketing. So nailing your customer avatars and nailing your uh, website copy and nailing your, you know, funnel strategy, whether you're using advertorials or or any sort of funnel. Um, Yeah, so that's, you know, like I think that time spent on educating yourself on the principles of psychology and marketing is always a time good spent. And one comparison too that I think is worth bringing up here is the I think the resonance of a more traditional advertising. Um, if you look, if you look at print media for for instance, a magazine ad has uh, a lot of exposure because somebody like myself might flip through the pages numerous times waiting for the next subscription to arrive. And then I not only have I seen that ad once, I've actually seen it multiple times. And so there's a way for it to stick. I think with television ads. Um, it, it it doesn't assume that the person is going to pay attention. Obviously, they can change the channel, they can get up, get a snack, whatever. But let's just say for sake of argument that they actually sit and um, watch the ad. Um, with the ability to have, you know, you have actors, you have a script, you have music, you have visuals. 
um, there's a lot of that they can do for the ads to really stick and stay in somebody's mind. And I think that does happen to be a challenge in the e-commerce space because I think there's so much competition, there's so much uh, stimuli that it is difficult for an ad to to really stick. But it sounds like this is something that you guys have an advantage because you, with your hy hypothesis and your experimentation, you can get a better understanding of where are the pain points of the consumer and what are not the pain points of the consumer. So is there anything that you can say on this subject? Like, have you, uh, have you seen ways to make your ads really more compelling and stick in people's minds just to, you know, get more value out of them in that way? Yeah, definitely. And I think like, especially for social ads, right? What's really is the indicator of a good ad. It's like what I call it's, you know, let's say virality potential, right? So when I evaluate ads, um, you know, there's really a few things that we need them to to do, right? So I have sort of a checklist and I hope I'm going to actually remember all the items now. But number one is, is attention, right? Like, you know, in the, you know, when a person's scrolling through a, new, through a newsfeed, you really have to get their attention, right? Even on, on YouTube, right? Or even in TV, right? That's the principle, right? We have to get someone's attention so that they don't walk away and make themselves a peanut butter sandwich, but uh, but actually stay and watch your ad, right? So like grabbing attention is important. So having some sort of, you know, fast-paced pattern interrupt, some sort of, you know, really weird uh, things, you know, even uh, talking about audio on platforms like Snapchat or, or YouTube is, is really important. Uh, so getting attention is, is number one, right? Are you getting the attention of the bat? Um, the next thing is uh, this sort of, you know, like showing the product, uh, you know, presenting the product as, the, as your solution. So pulling a person into into the world of the product and showing relevance, right? That's that, that's what's important. So you have to show the person, you know, like and make it visual and make it emotional, um, how they're going to experience the product, right? So the like ownership benefits, uh, not just tell them, but actually show them, right? So that's another important thing. And uh, I'm talking primarily about video ads because that's, you know, what's uh, like, probably most of the volume is coming from. The next thing is this virality potential, right? Which is something really interesting. And there's the book called uh, Contagious that, that I really recommend. It's pretty good, very, very simple. Um, and it, it tells it tells you about a few principles of, of things that make ads or campaigns more likely to go viral. And they talk about things like, you know, um, a certain... Um, kind of status that sharing this information within your ad is gonna is gonna give to a person, right? Also, pre-packaging your product into a into a, like a short slogan or story that someone can share. So let's say you know, uh, think about a simple slogan like uh, let's say indestructible shoes, right? Like something that you know you can shoot with your gun, just you can shoot and they're not gonna be destroyed, right? So this is something that is is worth sharing, right? So something that okay, you see this ad. If you hear about this product, you're going to tell your friends, like, check out this ad, dude, right? Or, for example, my favorite ad of all times, it's um, the, the Soda Stream ad with Paris Hilton that you absolutely must watch. It's so awesome. Uh, so th this is stuff that, you know, like, you tell your friends about it, and, you know, your friends are going to have fun, and they're going to thank you, and it's going to make you look good if you uh, if, if, if they know they've heard from you, right? So this is the, this kind of, like... Um, whether sharing this content is going to like upgrade the social status of the person watching it. Right. Another thing is, you know, just like make it easy to share. So like prepackaging this, right. If you tell um, someone in the ad that like the only, let's say, let's come back to the indestructible shoes examples, the only shoes that, you know, like are hundred percent indestructible. Right. So it makes it easy for a person to just repeat it. Like, Hey, you need to see this ad about those shoes that are indestructible. Right. Stuff like this. 
what else was there? Just um, in terms of availability, right? I mean, maybe that applies more to products than to marketing campaigns, but uh, generally something that you you know you see a lot that can remind you of um, of this product that people see a lot th- throughout their day is gonna be um, is gonna be more shareable. So you know, if you look at your computer every day and so an ad that you know shows me my computer then maybe you know i'm going to be more likely to remember the ads and to to share it when i'm with friends when i look at my computer right and yeah and principles like that you know i'm not going to spoil the whole book but it's it's really worth reading um this stuff if you you know start implementing those sort of principles in your uh, in your ads you're going to see massive benefit mm-hmm. i i think some of it also too is about the you know the cultural landscape of the time um the the one uh, internet ad that really sticks out to me was going back to the dollar shave club is because i think really that's like one of the first internet ads i remember seeing and it was so influential that it just became an amusing video to watch in its own right in 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 this time and you know respectfully things are getting got uh, rather pc around that point so for this guy to come out and say are razors good no they're Okay, great. And so that alone is like, it sticks out. I, I must have seen that 10 years ago, and I still remember it just because of how distinct it was compared to everything else that was going on at the time. Yeah, this this ad is, this ad is pretty good. But like the one thing can, we have to remember is that most of the people, let's say, uh, you know, most of the e-commerce owners doing less than you know seven figures, they are not going to be able to afford those sort of productions. So how on yeah. earth do you make something that's going to be powerful um, and and profitable for you, right, without breaking the budget? So but that's important to say that you don't need to have a cinematographic production. In fact, sometimes those cinematographic production actually don't work as well as people imagine, right? So the thing about marketing and creatives is that, you know, once people see uh, something over and over again and everybody follows the same ad, ad structure, um, then they, they almost stop working, right? So that's why, like, you have to constantly experiment and just constantly monitor tools like monitor your competitions or tools like, you know, Facebook Ads Library, or um, you know all those ad spying tools and see what kind of cool stuff new brands are are doing right so for example like we've made a i've made a list of like 55 brands that you can follow because uh, it's not just about following uh, your, the brands that you that are your immediate competitors it's actually about following like all the top e-commerce brands some 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 brands that you just like like their ads and seeing what kind of new concepts they're testing and thinking how you can apply it to your niche right something that's new something that you haven't seen and also working with people and, and, you know, hiring creative guys that are not just, you know, executioners, but they can actually bring cool, well-thought ideas uh, to the table with the customer psychology in mind, right? But always, 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 like, don't just rely on, you know, like, what was very popular a few years back was those, like, BuzzFeed ads, like, you know, very simple, kind of, you know, you just, you know, talk about uh, there's captions at the bottom, stuff like this. But I find that they, they, they work less and less, right, unless you have a very new product. Uh, so, you know, we constantly have to search for, for new concepts and formats that, that are going to be killing it. By the way, if you're a current user of Debutify or haven't tried us out yet, Debutify version 3 has been released and now is a good time to upgrade or get started as any. A streamlined user interface along with an ever-increasing array of conversion-boosting add-ons is waiting for you. So download today for free and start your journey. Who knows? Maybe I'll be interviewing you before too long. So I am watching the time, and I know that I only have you for another uh, ten minutes. So um, I just there's a couple of other things I just want to make sure that we that we got to uh, while I still have you. Uh, and by the way, thank you 
for, for, for being here so far. This has been a lot of uh, interesting insights uh, for myself. Uh, and I may or may not have like pulled up the Paris Hilton video. I was tempted to just like screen share it just for the episode, but I'll, I'll, I'll skip it because we're, we're on the clock here. But for people looking to work with you, what would be the, uh, the bar for entry? Um, I guess some of it has to do with the mission of the company, but also has to do with, you know, where they're at in, you know, at what, what figure range that they're in at that point. Right. So I think that the, the, the main things that we're looking uh, that we're looking for in our customers is, is not even necessarily their size, but whether they've got some some sort of you know like cap- capability to scale, right? Because like sometimes we we are working with startups who have some sort of external funding. Like funding is is crucial. Like don't get me wrong. Like you have to have some sort of uh, cash, especially to work with an agency, right? And I I really don't recommend uh, anyone to work with an agency unless you know you're making sort of you know consistent cash flow. Um, or you have some sort of external backing, right? If you're starting out and you want to work with an agency, that's probably not the best bet. Uh, if you're, you know, bootstrapping and you're, you know, dropshipping, like it's it's really like important to to learn marketing by yourself, right? Because you know you think it might sound great, oh, I'm just gonna outsource it and stuff like this, but most of the people, including marketers, they have no idea what they what they are doing, and it you know it costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time to put together a team that uh you know has the capability that you need to to uh you know to take business to, to iterate on so many levels because when you're starting out you need to be growth hacking on every front right so like if you're bootstrapping definitely learn your uh, marketing skills right but if you do have some some sort of success let's say you're making you know even even thirty thousand dollars a month consistently and you have some product that has that that has some uniqueness to it you know like uh ideally you you already passed the stage of drop shipping you've white labeled your product uh you or you already ideally have some sort of innovation to it right then uh, yeah we can definitely have a chat check out our website salesgenomics.co.uk and um and um, we will first of all check if we can help out that's that's number one step right because for us it's a opportunity cost or you know, our teams uh, either either work on a project that's going to work out, or they get pissed off and just you know tell me that you know we should have never uh, we shouldn't take this um, this this brand you know it doesn't have the potential to scale. So we always you know like pay attention to who we work with, and we're gonna tell you right away. Yeah, and and there was actually uh, you reminded me of a point that I uh, was uh, was going to make earlier, just about the challenge of um, resonating with the with the audience compared to uh, print and, and and media, and one thing that I. Uh, uh, wanted to say to that as well is also the uniqueness of the product um, because it's, it's choosing a winning product in, in, in dropshipping country is, is tantamount to success and a lot of it is just the ability for it to be new whereas in, in a lot of other spaces you know going back to Colgate um, they're selling toothpaste most people know what toothpaste is it's not it's not a pattern interrupt in their life. That problem has been solved we're just now it's a competition between who are the better solvers um, you know, car ads are obviously very popular. Most people know what a car is, so it's a it's a it's a challenge of which car is is right for the consumer. So you don't see as many um, novel products or or any new problems being solved uh, on these traditional mediums. What you see in the space is a lot of uh, new products, and that alone allows them to stick out in people's minds as well. And then the other thing that I wanted to say too um, is. I, I, I one of the things I appreciate about your your your, your metric for who's um, ideal to work with is that they have to have some prior experience with advertising and they also have to have some experience with successful advertising in order to get to a point where they can have a more 
even a handed conversation with you rather than them just asking all the questions and putting all the pressure and onus on you to deliver on something when they themselves, they don't have that many resources they can really give. So that's, I think, an important part too, is that in order to seek a service out, you should have some experience yourself as how for it to, for it to be effective. It makes you a better customer, makes you a better client. Yeah, exactly. And makes you also, you know, like more in control of your business, right? Like that's marketing is like so crucial. It's gonna, in dropshipping is gonna make or break your business. It's, uh, there's no skipping a step if you're, if that's your way, right? If you're, it's a different way when you have an innovative product and you're raising capital and you have to focus on other stuff, right? So, and there's one other thing that I found very distinctive about your your service, which is how it differentiates from the structure of a typical agency. Uh, whereas in a typical agency, you know, an account manager services the clients, and then the work is assigned to different departments. You have art, you have creative, and I'm basing honestly I'm basing this off Mad Men to be honest with you. Uh, versus your agency, I looked at the web of it, and it was more decentralized. There seemed to be a lot more of a relationship between all the different departments. So. Um, what 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 makes the fun, what makes the the mechanism of your agency stand out from other agencies? Yeah, so what I what I think is, um, I mean, you know, there are two types of agencies. Let's let's call it right. There are big media houses with this kind of very kind of siloed departmental structures, right? And they are boutique agencies that that effectively, like especially boutique growth hacking agencies, that you know they they start they gather a team that's perfect for this project, right? And then this team works very closely together on uh, you know sharing information internally iterating pretty fast right so this is we basically have you know like those growth teams we that are that are built uh for particular clients you know and uh, and those teams you know they, they work very closely on those on those iteration cycles and those growth hacking loops to, to make this possible and we find that this this sort of arrangement just you know makes people especially creative people more creative because they can focus on on those clients, right? And they can really dive deep into the customer psychology versus thinking, okay, like what do I have to do next? You know, what's, what's my next time? What's my next task, right? So this is uh, this sort of setup is it's more resembling or having a, a sort of like an in-house department, right? Right. There is one other thing that I also found distinctive about the agency as well. Actually, there's a number of things, but I'll, I'll have to end on this one, which is also the way that people working with your company are, are, are treated. There's a, it's, it seems to be, it's very deadline focused and it really gives people as much freedom as, as possible. And so that uh, allows them to, um, just focus on the work kind of on, on their terms. I think that's great. And what I would like to know is maybe compared to some of your previous experiences is how have you seen that fare in results? Have you seen that the overall satisfaction of the employees has really like improved and enhanced the the work the quality of the work that they provide yeah definitely so so it's really amazing to to be able to and for me it's normal right but then when i so this is something that felt like the only natural solution right to have a workplace where you basically have you know like there's no fixed hours there's no nine to five expectations you can take vacations uh, no no however much you can and you're gonna still get paid right? Nobody is, is bugging you except for, you know, the calls that you have scheduled. So this is a great workplace that I've always wanted to have. Um, and we just, we just built it, right? And I think what it, what it does is, is it, it, it does screen out a certain portion of people because there's, you know, some people come to the company and they say, oh my God, it's chaotic. Like, what's my, you know, what should I do next? And, you know, I, I really don't know what to do, right? Because let's say the, the onboarding is never perfect. You know, by the time we perfect it, it's already outdated. Yeah. So it's uh, like you, you really, from, from the moment that you enter the company, you have to 
you have to be able to find your own way as the right people and stuff like that but it's also it also what make what makes it exciting and so and I think you know we attract the people who value the freedom and responsibility, and who really just want to learn from the best, be with the best, and uh, and just have an exciting kind of lifestyle. Whether they just want to have the freedom and be with their family, um, or they just already want to travel the world and while working, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think it also reflects too just the way that um, work culture in general is is evolving, and that because if you look at the major revelations. Um, we're, I mean, we're not quite at quantum speed yet, but we're pretty close. And so a lot of there's a lot of adaptation in the industry today, which just, there just wasn't in the 90s and the 80s. And, you know, the further back you go, the more disparate the major revelations are. So that kind of environment is really like the future. And that is the kind of thing that people have to be ready to, to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's, I'm really excited about where it's going. And there's a great book I read, The Year Without Pants, about WordPress. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, even nailing it on the book recommendations today. The WordPress yeah. is like probably the biggest remote company. Awesome. All right. Well, well, Matt, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, and I um, and it's just at 10 o'clock, so I know I got to uh, get you on out of here. So if there's any final words you want to say to our audience, parting wisdom, answer to a question you didn't ask, whatever you feel like, you're more than welcome to. And then you have told us um, where to find you, where to find your, your agency, but you also have some content too. So let the audience know where they can find your content. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a YouTube channel called uh, e- uh, <laughs> E-Commerce Scaling Strategies by Sales Genomics. I always get it wrong. And we have a, actually a Facebook community under the same name. If you're doing more than 20, 30,000, uh, then it's, it's not a beginner community, definitely. But if you're uh, already advanced, then uh, join our group as well under the same name, E-Commerce Scaling Strategies by Sales Genomics. Excellent. Well, well, to my audience, uh, as always, thank you for your participation. There's definitely a lot to uh, think about in the future, and frankly, a lot to look forward to. You know, it's it's. I was I was prepared to ask you about you know what's what's going on, how are things in uh, in Poland right now, and then you know, this morning, I'm like, oh, you know, he's in he's in Dubai. Well, things do change pretty fast, don't they? So, you know, that's just the the world that we have to look forward to. Um, and with that, uh, Matt, once more, uh, thank you so much for your time and your insight. It uh, means a lot. And uh, take care. We'll check in soon. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at Debutify.com. Or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.